so the, the idea behind a pillow fight, right, has anybody ever, ever had a pillow fight? Uh, is that you hit somebody with something that's soft and presumably they don't get hurt and everybody has fun. Uh, but it didn't take long, um, in junior high, it didn't take long uh, for us to figure out that a pillow can get pretty dense the more you swing it around. So the centrifugal force just keeps pushing the pillow further and further down into the end of the pillowcase until you have a pretty solid and somewhat dangerous weapon. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. Maybe that was just me. But we start, as humans, with the invention of a pillow, which is certainly better than sleeping on a rock. And then somewhere, someone thought, maybe we should hit each other with these. And then in junior high, we thought, let's see if we can make it hurt, right? Let's see if we can make a pillow as hard as we possibly can to hurt somebody. So humans are incredible in all of the ways that we can create, invent, and utilize good things for good. But humans are also incredible because evidently, or inevitably, we think, how can we use this as a weapon, no matter what it is? So according to Wikipedia, gunpowder wasn't originally created as powder used to shoot a bullet out of a gun. It came from the invention of fireworks, something that was intended to be beautiful and celebratory. But then we thought, how can we make this into a weapon? And not to be too depressing, but also to be really, really depressing. In just four months in the United States this year, we've had over 200 mass shootings. So, I mean, we hear this all the time, so, so often in this country that we barely take note. But think about that for a moment. In four months, 200 mass shootings, and a mass shooting is defined as an incident where four or more people are injured or killed. Four or more. Humans are incredible in our ability to create and utilize good things for good. But we're also incredibly creative in our ability to weaponize everything that is good even faith in God. So this is what stands out to me in 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning partway through verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. <clears throat> and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that God may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. So, we lost. It must be God's fault. Now what should we do? How about we force God to come with us and to fight for us? So they bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is a religious symbol shaped like a throne, and presumably God is on that throne, right? So this is God's presence. They take God's presence with them back to the battlefield. So continuing in verse 5, when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? 
When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Nothing quite like toxic masculinity, right? So verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this whole story is set up to be a great comeback story. It's supposed to be like the kid who gets beat up by a bully, but in the end wins a karate tournament against that same bully, right? It's Jackie Robinson breaking the American baseball color barrier. These, these are all sports analogies. I'm not really sure what other <laughs> analogies to use. Um, maybe it's like the music of Queen becoming popular again after the movie Wayne's World. I don't know, something like that. But the point is, is that this is supposed to be a comeback, a story about things turning around, things becoming better for the people of God. Instead, what happens is our main character loses, and then they lose again. It's really a terrible movie. It's a terrible story, unless we consider that win or lose, God isn't supposed to be used as a weapon in the first place. Now, this is a pretty tough argument to make, because God is often portrayed in the Bible and outside of the Bible as violent, as a warrior God. For, for example, the first Indiana Jones movie is about the Ark of the Covenant, the same Ark of the Covenant here in this story. And spoiler alert, for those of you who haven't seen it, when the Ark is opened at the end, God's power is unleashed in all of its destructive glory. And, and we're fine with it for the most part because it's, it's Nazi faces that are melting off. But is this really the kind of God that we are here to follow? I would suggest that our problem is that we're reading these stories too often at a surface level. The Bible says God is a warrior, therefore God must be a warrior. But if we go deeper into the story... It seems like this story is setting the stage for us to see God's violence for what it is, humans weaponizing faith. So, let's consider a couple of important things. First, in 1 Samuel, uh, the book of 1 Samuel starts off in the time of the judges, when according to the Bible, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So, like, no moral direction at all. Everyone was just doing whatever it is that they thought was best. So, we shouldn't expect, as we jump into this book, for this story, on the surface at least, to be a clear reflection of God's character. Many times when we open up the, the Bible, we just assume, oh, like, this is God saying who God is. But we shouldn't expect in this story for God's character to be revealed in a clear way. And the second thing is, is that the prophet Samuel is completely absent from this part of the story, these four, next four chapters. 
And this is strange because the first three chapters of the book of First Samuel are about God raising Samuel up to speak truth to those who are harming others with their power and their privilege. So, no prophetic voice in this story to challenge human violence. As a result, the people take God with them to war. Again, we shouldn't expect that this short story should be a clear reflection of God's character, at least on the surface. So, as I mentioned before, the Ark of the Covenant is a religious symbol shaped like a throne where God is present. But what is often forgotten throughout the Bible is that the Ark of the Covenant is actually a memory box or maybe like a time capsule. And there are three things inside of it. It's not just sort of like a throne. The three things are the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses, the staff of Moses' brother Aaron, and a jar of manna, which is the food that God gave the people as they were wandering in the wilderness. So, when the Ten Commandments were given to the people through Moses, they were intended to guide the people specifically toward love and toward community, love of God and love of one another, essentially. Plus, we should know that one of those Ten Commandments states very clearly, thou shall not kill. So, pretty ironic to take something like that into war, right? Aaron's staff was used by God to help rescue the people from slavery in Egypt. It's a reminder of God's liberating movement away from human oppression and violence. So again, relatively ironic to take that into war. And the jar of manna is a reminder of God's feeding and nourishing us. So at its literal core, the ark is not a symbol of a God who is a warrior, but a reminder of God's guiding, liberating, nourishing, and loving presence. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is intended to reflect. So, two weeks ago, we were all invited to Beth Shir Shalom, one of the Jewish synagogues here in town, for lunch with our, our Jewish friends. We've had a number of classes together with them where they've come here and we've gone there. And I was invited to talk specifically about Jesus. And so I started the class off by asking, what words, images, or experiences come to mind when you hear the name Jesus? And I imagine we all have our own sort of initial reactions. And, and so, of course, we had answers like teacher and love, which is, that's great. That, that's a good start. But I was, I was especially moved by the honest comments from our friends like fear or I have a feeling like a pit in my stomach or I think of an experience as a kid of being punished or the destructive and false accusation that the Jews killed Jesus, that it's the Jews' fault for, for what happened to Jesus. It's really important for us to hear those, those responses, those, those reactions. We have to understand that these people are not anti-Christian. Like, they invited us to their synagogue. They, they invited me to be there to talk specifically about Jesus. We are close friends with this community. They care about us, and we care about them. So, so their reaction is not an accusation against 
Jesus, really, it's, it's important for us to hear it. It's important for us to hear about their experience because our faith, if we're honest, does have a long history of using Jesus as a weapon. We have to be honest about that. We need to listen so that we can see how our faith continues to be used as a weapon today. So the Ark of the Covenant has been lost to history unless you believe that after Indiana Jones found it, it was stored away in some giant military warehouse somewhere with aliens or Elvis or something like that. Either way, it doesn't really matter because for both Jews and Christians and and people of, of many other faith traditions, God's presence in the world is supposed to be reflected not entirely through symbols and through pieces of furniture. God's presence is supposed to be made real in the world through us through humans, through our words, through our actions, through our presence here in the world. So this terrible story of God's people going to war and using God as a weapon or trying to use God as a weapon in 1 Samuel, it's continually asking us us this question, how, how will we use our faith? How will our faith be used in this world as a destructive weapon? Or will our faith compel us to be reflections of God's liberating way of love in the world? Like we have a choice and we have options. It doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, many times it is really complicated, but it doesn't always have to be so complicated. It can be as simple as listening to those who are different than us, those who have different faith perspectives or world perspectives. It can be as simple as feeding somebody who is hungry It can be an expression, any expression of kindness or compassion or love of any kind. It can be not killing each other. Imagine that. It can be as simple and as complicated as using whatever it is that we have for good. It doesn't have to be so complicated. It often is very complicated. But God is inviting us to consider how do we use our faith? Will we use it as a weapon or will we use it ultimately to reflect God's caring, guiding, liberating, and loving presence with us here in this world? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be attentive to your caring presence with us. And may your presence your love, your care for us, be also at work through us so that we might care and love one another. Amen.